Good morning and welcome to all of you. Good to see you here in the house of the Lord and uh, good to see visitors here with us. Nice to see Andy and Katie here uh, with us as well. It looks like, feels like back home. I know it's been a number of years since you've not been here, but it's still good to have you back. I'm going to uh, be talking this morning about the Holy Spirit and um, I wanted you to be thinking about this after you leave here. And so I have some handouts this morning. And if uh, Henry could be, come up here and help hand these out. Daryl, do you want to help as well? And um, these, uh, we'll be referring to these later. This is not, I don't see Henry right now. Uh, maybe. Joe, you want to help? And then there should be enough for every youth and adult, uh, hopefully, and uh, we'll be looking at that a bit later. And then also, uh, after you, James, you want to come up here, and um, I have something for who, those who would consider themselves children or, or youth, uh, younger ones. There's a word search puzzle taken out of Acts 2, and uh, Give it to any of the children that might be interested, and I'll leave it to the parents, whether that's done during the service here or, or afterwards. But um, there should be enough for all the children here. <clears throat> While they are doing that, if you would turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, we're going to focus uh, time here this morning on the first two chapters of Acts. And as you're turning there and as they're passing this out, um, just wanted you to, um, to think about a couple of questions. If someone were to ask you, how has the Holy Spirit directly impacted your life in the last week, what would your response be? Um, or what about even in the last month? Another thing to think about, if the Holy Spirit were to withdraw himself, how would your life change? In what ways would life be different? And then uh, thirdly, is the power of the Holy Spirit in your life evident to unbelievers, to those around you that see you and interact with you? <clears throat> Today is known as the day of Pentecost, and um, Pentecost is literally is a transliteration of the Greek word, and it means 50 days. Seven weeks ago today, we um, celebrated Easter, the resurrection after the crucifixion of Christ. 50 days after the Jewish Passover is the Feast of Weeks, an annual one-day harvest festival that's celebrated by the Jews. And, uh, you know, the Passover was introduced back in Egypt with the blood on the, uh, on the doorposts and the, over the top of the door when each family killed a spotless lamb uh, to protect them against the plague of every firstborn being put to death. And it's no coincidence that it was on Passover, it was over Passover that Jesus was crucified. He was that perfect lamb, that perfect sacrifice. It was on that Passover holiday. The Feast of Weeks was one of the three Jewish holidays where the Jews all came to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival. And uh, they were to appear in person and present gifts and offerings. And so it was not unusual for Jews from all over to be gathered in Jerusalem for this annual harvest festival. And so the timing of this Old Testament Feast of Weeks, uh, you know, was all pointing forward to, I believe, the day of Pentecost. Um, and so we want to take a look at that uh, as we look at this together. So we're going to look at uh, Acts 1 and 2 here. First of all, before we uh, dive into that, is that Jesus was here on earth, and he talks about this in the first several verses of Acts 1. He was here in the resurrected body for 40 days, so nearly six weeks that he was here on earth after his resurrection. And we don't have just a lot of information of what happened during those six weeks. For me, I would be very curious 
what all happened there. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, it kind of lists a few things at the beginning of the chapter there where that he was there, and he mentions in there that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. So there was a group of 500 people that were... Uh, that saw Jesus and that he, he talked to them, he appeared to them. Matthew only has very sketchy um, the last part of chapter 28 where he gives the Great Commission is the only account that Matthew gives as what transpired after the resurrection uh, as far as the interaction. Mark has only several sentences uh, that, that talk about uh, the resurrection or after the resurrection what Jesus did. Luke 24 records the account of Jesus appearing in the midst of the disciples and him showing his hands and his feet and so forth. John 21 is one chapter that is, is about post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. And that was when Jesus was by the Sea of Galilee and he prepared fish for the disciples. And if you remember the dialogue, the exchange between John and Jesus, uh, between Peter and Jesus there, when he said, feed my sheep three different times. And so that's one of the most extensive records of interaction after the resurrection, prior to the ascension. But then look at what it says here in Acts 1, verses 1 through 5. This is written by Luke, and it really is a continuation of the Gospel of Luke. Um, in the first book, O Theophilus, and this is who he's writing to, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. I would very much like to know what Jesus taught speaking about the kingdom of God for those 40 days. But we don't have record of that. I, I wonder what all Jesus taught to them. In my mind, it, that would be some of the most crucial information that Jesus gave if it was recorded in Scripture. And maybe that's why we don't have record of it, because there's adequate information there without that. But he spent time with the disciples, and he taught them. And, um, and we know that, uh, that he, he taught them many things during that time. I am sure the disciples paid very close attention to whatever Jesus had to say during this time. And then he tells them here as well, explicitly, don't leave Jerusalem until the promise of the Holy Spirit comes. And continuing on in verse 6 then, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? So they were still thinking earthly kingdom. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood with him in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here, stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go to heaven. So here, on the 40th day, or uh, yeah, while they were together on the Mount of Olives outside Jerusalem, Jesus ascends back up into heaven. And... Uh, and he's going to remain there. He's going to remain in heaven until that time the Father decides to return to get his bride, the church. So the disciples, obediently, as they were instructed, returned to Jerusalem to wait, to wait for this promise from the Father, to wait for the Holy Spirit to come, to wait for whatever Jesus had promised. At this point, they didn't really know what they were waiting for, but that's what they uh, were, were instructed to do. What I find interesting is that unlike after the resurrection or at the point of the resurrection, 
we don't see here that the disciples are doubting or disbelieving what Jesus asked of them. They just simply obeyed. They went back to Jerusalem and they waited. And they didn't know how long they, they were to wait. Continuing on in verse 12, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So here they are. They went back to Jerusalem and they waited. They waited together. They waited with one accord. They devoted themselves to prayer. And so they were just there together waiting, praying. Not sure what they're waiting for, but waiting obediently. And then um, in verse 15, in those days, this is where Matthias is then chosen to replace Judas Iscariot as one of the twelve. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. So there was a lot more people here than just the 11 disciples. He said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. And then there's a parenthetical sentence in there, the next couple of verses. And jumping down to verse 20, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, let, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So these... Disciples are together, there's 120 faithful disciples, and Peter suggests, hey, we ought to select someone to replace Judas, and uh, someone that has been there from the beginning, that saw Jesus baptized and was there through uh, the resurrection. And so they picked two men that were qualified, that met those qualifications, and again, they prayed, they cast lots, and Matthias was the one that was chosen uh, to... Um, to replace Judas. Verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice and Mathis. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which of these two you have chosen to take the place of the ministry and the apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So here they were. This happened sometime in that ten-day window between the ascension of Jesus and... Uh, and the day of Pentecost. So here they were waiting. Uh, they were praying. They thought, oh, we ought to take care of this. And so they did that. But they're just waiting. And so they waited for a whole week. They kept waiting. And I'm sure they were wondering, what exactly are we waiting for? But then it happened. It, uh, on the very day that the Jewish people from around the world were gathering in Jerusalem... For the Feast of Weeks, this, uh, these 120 people were together waiting 10 days after the ascension in verse 1 of chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire appeared on them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. <clears throat> this was 9 o'clock in the morning on the 50th day. And this sound, this unmistakable sound, uh, it says 
like a mighty rushing wind. Uh, some translation would say a violent rushing wind. Um, but it was the sound that filled the house. It wasn't the wind. It wasn't wind, but it was the sound that they heard. Maybe it sounded like a hurricane. I've never been through a hurricane. Maybe it sounded something like that. Uh, or like a tornado. They say that tornadoes sound like a freight train as they approach. Maybe that was, maybe they really heard the sound of a freight train. Uh, you know, but they didn't have words to describe it back then in those terms. But there was unmistakable sound that they heard and it got everyone's attention. They weren't distracted by anything else. It had their attention. And then something visible appeared on each one of them. It says uh, it looked like fire. It wasn't fire, I don't believe, but it was something that looked like fire. Maybe it was on their heads, maybe it was on their shoulders, but it was something visible that they saw on each other. And it was, it was an indicator of the very presence of God. And I believe at this point, something very special happened as the sound of the wind and the appearance of a fire-like flame, that was the official inauguration of the church of Jesus Christ, if you will, the birth of the church. Now, some might say that, well, it would have really started earlier, and I'm not, but this is the completion of what it was that the church needed. It started with the incarnation of Christ, his life, his death, the resurrection, the ascension, and now the infilling of the Holy Spirit. So the plan of salvation, everything was complete at this time, and the church was inaugurated. The church was born. Then see what happens as we go read on. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. Notice that. Devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. People outside this group apparently heard something as well, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed, astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phydra and Pamphylia and Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine, or, or they're drunk. So this, you know, everyone else noticed. There was lots of people that noticed. We will see later. There was literally thousands of people that noticed this. And so these devout Jews were all gathered here, and they were there from all over the place. Um, and then there would have been the Roman soldiers as well, and the proselytes, the Arabians and Cretans. I don't even know where all these places would be, but they couldn't help but notice that these 120 believers gathered there, that something, and they had these flame-like things on them, that there was something different about them and that they were actually hearing things in their own language. It doesn't say that they were speaking in those languages, but that they were hearing in their own language. Um, but, but not all of them were necessarily impressed, I mean, because they accused them of being drunk. And, uh, but regardless, it caught their attention and they, were pay- they listened. And then Peter the one who had denied Jesus three times during the night, just seven weeks earlier, eight weeks earlier, um, you know, he clearly, not in his own power, but he was a totally different person than he was the night of the crucifixion. He now boldly speaks to the crowd that's gathered. And, you know, some of them were jeering, but there was a lot of them that were curious. 
And it's clear that this is not something of his own power. This is something beyond himself. And I'd like to read um, the sermon that he preached there, and we'll continue reading starting in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, or nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy." And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, and sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of the lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken." Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, but you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David who, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of, what, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out This that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel before know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Peter got up and boldly spoke a sermon similar to this, Uh, probably not these exact words, but that was the gist of his sermon. And the response was incredible. They, and that meaning the thousands of people gathered there, the Jews, the Romans, the Cretans, the proselytes from every nation, they were convicted by Peter's message. And what I find interesting is obviously they all understood. It doesn't say that Paul, uh, that Peter spoke in multiple languages. It doesn't say that Peter had a translator there to translate, but they all understood. And uh, the Holy Spirit miraculously allowed this. And continues in verse 37. And when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brother, what shall, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So there's the promise of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's, when we repent and come to the Lord, that promise is there. We will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who received this word, his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So Peter's sermon generated the question of, now what? 
And he said, repent, be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 3,000 souls being added to the church literally within hours of the church being born. Maybe an hour. Uh, we don't know. But the response was phenomenal. And it was very obvious that these believers, these 120 that were there, were very different from people around them. As a result, their lives were completely disrupted and rearranged. Their priorities changed. They lived a life very different than they did prior to this. The Holy Spirit radically altered each one of these believers' lives. And we see that in the rest of the chapter here. Notice some of these characteristics of these first believers. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day as those who were being saved. <clears throat> Just look over this list of these characteristics of these new believers. You know, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, devoted to fellowship, devoting to breaking of bread or having meals together, devoted to prayer. Um, awe came on every believer. There were signs and wonders. They had everything in common. They took care of each other's needs. They sold their possessions. And back to what James read in Acts 5, is some actually lied about it. So it's not like this was all perfect. But, um, I mean, so there was this pressure to do that or, and this uh, desire to do this. Uh, they were praising God, and God kept adding to their number every day. Now, some may ask, well, is this a pattern that the church should duplicate today? And I don't think so. I think this is descriptive of what happened, not necessarily prescriptive of what should be everywhere. But it does show us the transformative and powerful work of the Holy Spirit in believers' lives. It makes a big difference. And so what does the Holy Spirit want to do through us today? What impact does the reality of the Holy Spirit have on our lives? Now, imagine for a minute that this past week or this past month, um, Jesus as a person would have literally been with you 24-7. He would have been with you, going with you everywhere you went. He sat with you at mealtimes. He went to work with you. He was there with you in your non-work time. He heard all your conversations. He was looking over your shoulder as you were browsing social media on your smartphone. He saw how you reacted when something didn't go as planned. Everything. Imagine Jesus was right there next to you. Thinking back, is there anything that you would have done differently if that would have been the reality? If so, why? And I would venture to say that if we say that we would have acted differently, that's an indication to me that we're not taking the Holy Spirit seriously. That we're not really aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life, because he is with us. He was with us this past month, every second of everything, and he wants to help us. His presence is every bit as real as if a person was right next to us. Do we realize that? Do we, are we aware of that? <clears throat> Francis Chan makes a statement, and I tend to agree with this, is that many Christians have neglected or even forgotten the Holy Spirit. Um, and I think that's a good way of thinking about it. He actually has a book that he wrote on this subject called Forgotten God, that we have neglected the power and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit is a person. 
the third person in the Godhead. He is co-equal with the Father and the Son, but he's often overlooked. The Western mantra in Christianity is all about loving Jesus. Uh, it's all about Jesus and me. And I in no way want to diminish the work that Jesus did on the cross. That is critical, it is important, it is significant. At the same time, to overlook or ignore the person and the work of the Holy Spirit by exclusively focusing on Jesus is, is not healthy, is not appropriate either. <clears throat> Thinking back over the last week or the last month, how often have you consciously engaged in communion with the Holy Spirit? I have to be honest. It's not, as I was studying this, I was convicted. It's not as frequent as what I would wish I could say, is that I think it should be. I'd like for us to think about several things. If you get your papers, we're going to look at some of these references now. And I have some space there on the right that if you want to take some notes, you can. <clears throat> um, but I want us to think about God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Acts 7, we read, but he, and this is talking about Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So get this picture. Stephen was on earth full of the Holy Spirit. He looked up into heaven. He saw God the Father with Jesus standing next to him. And I recognize God is omnipresent. God the Father and Jesus, I mean, they're, they're omnipresent. But there's something here that I think we need to recognize. God the Father and Jesus are in heaven at this time. It is the Holy Spirit that is on earth dwelling, indwelling us. Do we think about that? Do we recognize that? He, Jesus is in heaven until he comes back again. Romans 8, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So Jesus is interceding for us to the Father through our prayer, through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, so God, the Father is in heaven, Jesus at his right hand, interceding for us. And the Holy Spirit was sent to earth after Jesus' ascension to dwell in each and every believer at every place for all time. And Jesus explicitly states that it is to our advantage, it is to the believer's advantage to have Jesus return to heaven and have the Holy Spirit come and dwell us. Now, the Holy Spirit in John 16 is translated multiple ways. It's referring to the Holy Spirit. Comforter, helper, advocate, counselor are all descriptors and other names for the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> but notice what he says in John 16. Nevertheless, I, and this is Jesus speaking, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper or the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all, into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, the Holy Spirit will glorify me, Jesus, that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And that the Father, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said, that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So here, 
Jesus is making very clear that it is to believers' advantage, our benefit, that the Holy Spirit come and dwell in us versus Jesus being here. I, I think I have a hard time grasping that reality. But think about it. Jesus could only be at one place at one time. He was, he was restricted in that way. The Holy Spirit is dwelling in every believer at all times. Several things that we see here that the Holy Spirit does. Um, convicts us of sin, guides us in truth, speaks truth, and glorifies Jesus. And that's one thing you notice about the, the Spirit. The Spirit, Holy Spirit always glorifies God. It's never about glorifying us. It's never about glorifying the Spirit. But it's all about glorifying God. <clears throat> so the Holy Spirit dwells, lives in every believer. And um, we'll see this in Romans 8, verses 9 to 11 there as well. <clears throat> you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who, uh, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Here it's telling us that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And that same power is available to each one of us to live our lives. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, whom you, for you are not your own, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Just like I was talking about what if Jesus would be right there with us, the Holy Spirit is literally with us every minute of every day, ready to enable and empower us for everything that we do for the glory of God. The Holy Spirit is always guiding us into truth, always consistent with the revealed Word of God. So the challenge for myself and for you, do we ask the Holy Spirit to help us? Do we obey his quiet promptings? Do we listen to what he has to tell us? Do we ask for the power to do what he wants us to do? Do we want input from the Holy Spirit or do we prefer to do things the way that we would like to do them. This leads us to the next couple of verses there, and these were probably the most convicting to me as I, I read this. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 1 Thessalonians 5, do not quench the Spirit do not despise prophesying, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Have you ever grieved the Holy Spirit? I have, and I'm not proud of that. But I am guilty. I have grieved the Holy Spirit. I have not followed the Holy Spirit always when he has led me. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. When you quench a fire, you pour water on it until the last of the the last spark has been extinguished. <clears throat> when we quench the Spirit, we disregard or ignore what He's telling us to a point that the flame or the life of the Spirit is almost put out. I think we would all agree that quenching the voice of the Spirit is foolishness. I don't think we want to do that. At the same time, we also have to be discerning. 
It says, quench not the spirit, but then he goes on to say, test everything. Because of the incredible power and effectiveness of the Holy Spirit, Satan has developed counterfeit spirits that he tries to interfere with what with the Holy Spirit. Second Peter 2 warns us about that. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there were false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Remember, the Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. These heresies, the way of truth is blasphemy. The spirit of this world, or Satan's spirits, will try to get us to listen to their voices rather than that of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> but as we test the spirits, and we, where is this really coming from? We are to hold on to the good, those things from the Holy Spirit, and we're to stay away or abstain from every form of evil and might say the spirits of this world or the Satan's spirits. Those things are not of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> then we uh, come to the part where the Holy Spirit transforms us. <clears throat> Acts 4.13 does not mention the Holy Spirit, but it's a descriptive verse. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So, again, like I said, the Holy Spirit is not mentioned here. But we see from chapter 2 that the Holy Spirit transformed these lives in significant ways and took these what is described here as uneducated common men and made them, I don't know, pillars, uh, made them powerful advocates for Jesus, for the kingdom of God, for the church. And it's not because of themselves, but it was because of the power of the Holy Spirit unleashed in their lives. <clears throat> Probably all of the disciples, and particularly Peter, until the day of Pentecost, they were unsure of themselves, they were timid, they were cautious, and I would even say fearful. We saw that around the time of the crucifixion and the resurrection, but things are drastically different now. They have been filled with the Holy Spirit. They are preaching confidently, boldly, unapologetically. And then in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that, Christ, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. This same Holy Spirit that was promised and given to these 120 men and ladies gathered and waiting for Pentecost is promised to each and every one of us. It is available for every believer. Romans 8:27 For he who searches hearts and knows what is the mind of the spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That Holy Spirit is dwelling in us and is interceding for us according to the will of God. What better advocate could we have than having a person dwelling within us that knows the will of God and is instructing us and interceding for us in accordance with what God's will is for us? In Ephesians 4, uh, 3, it's a beautiful prayer. I've read this prayer many times. I've been fascinated by it. I love it. But I had never noticed several words right in the middle of it. 
through his spirit. I'd like to read this. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, for whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever. Amen. It's through the Spirit that we are, we have the power to do these things. Uh, it's not through anything else, but it's through the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit is already in our, uh, with, is in our inner being. It is the Holy Spirit that enables and fills believers with God's love for each other, for one another. And uh, because without that, we would not be able to love each other as God instructs. <clears throat> Wrapping up here with Galatians 5, and this passage is, is loaded. Um, there are multiple things in here which says by the Spirit or of the Spirit, with the Spirit. <clears throat> All pointing to the power and the importance of the Holy Spirit. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envying, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. <clears throat> We're to walk by the Spirit, we're to be led by the Spirit, we're to have the fruit of the Spirit, live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. But there's one thing that I have to remind myself, and that's in the second verse there. <clears throat> For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. In order for the Spirit to have the control that it desires in each one of our lives, it means putting to death, putting down those, our own desires. If we want to be controlled by the Spirit, it means following the Spirit rather than following our own desires. And this is pointed out then, the list of sins there a, the fruit of the Spirit, the results of the Spirit, if you will, or what the Spirit produces is. And these things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, those are things that do not come naturally for us. It's not something that we can manufacture on our own. But it's only as we surrender to the Spirit and allow Him to control us that these fruits can be produced in our lives. So in conclusion, the Holy Spirit was given to all believers at Pentecost and is there 
for all believers even today. We grieve the Spirit when we disobey His voice. And as we saw here in Galatians 5, the Spirit wants us to walk by the Spirit, to have the desires of the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, produce the fruit of the Spirit, live by the Spirit, and keep in step with the Spirit. And maybe one way of just summarizing all of these things is that the Spirit wants to control our lives. Will we allow the Holy Spirit control, complete control of our lives and be controlled by the Holy Spirit? Let's rise together for benediction. Father, thank you so much for this descriptive passage in Acts 1 and 2 of how you gave the promise of the Holy Spirit to believers. And Lord, as we think about this, as we uh, recognize our own human and fleshly tendencies, uh, we want to confess I want to confess that I have grieved the Spirit, and I don't want to do that. I pray that your Spirit would enable and empower each one of us to do exactly what you want us to do. I pray that you will enable us to do those things that we may not even think possible ourselves, even as what happened with the disciples there and with Peter's boldness. I pray that you would do a transformative work in our lives through the Spirit. If there's things in our lives that are hindering the work of the Spirit, I pray that you would point those out for us, that we can clear those obstacles and allow the Holy Spirit to have complete and total control of all aspects of our lives. Pray that you would dismiss us as we go from here. Remind us that your spirit is with us every minute of every day as we live our lives and that we can live in ways that please and honor uh, you in all things. Thank you. In the name of Jesus, amen.